And as they go, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, <clears throat> chapter 22. Book of Genesis, chapter 22, come to one of the more difficult and yet <clears throat> beautiful and amazing stories from the life of Abraham. Many stories in the Bible are very well known. Uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of David and Goliath. We could go on and on with stories that are fairly well known. Perhaps the one that stands out the most, even amongst unchurched people, in terms of its, if you will, its power, it's, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing story of sacrifice. This story is well known even amongst relatively unchurched people because of the request that is made, the response that is given, and then the un incredible resolve to the tension that is raised in the request that God gives to Abraham. It's really a story about what you value the most. It's really a story about worship. And it begs the question for all of us this morning, what is your top priority in life? What is it that you have to have in order to be happy, satisfied, and content in life? What, apart from God makes your life worth living, makes it meaningful. What must you have to be happy? Another way that many writers have encouraged us to ask this question is this. What is your idol? What is the thing in your life, the, the passion, desire, habit, whatever you want to call it, what is it in your life that competes with God for supremacy? that competes with God for being your source of satisfaction, that the thing that you think you have to have to say, okay, I have enough. This is a text that stretches us in this regard. As we've read through the stories of Abraham and Sarah, we've learned a couple of things. For Lot's wife, she had to have Sodom in order to be happy. Could not bear the thought of leaving it. For Lot's daughters, we saw that his daughters had to have children for life to be meaningful, and so they broke God's laws to have that. Sarah clearly wanted prominence in Abraham's life. Abraham wanted security more than he wanted God. The questions that bang around in the back of his mind are, can I trust God to provide for me in a time of famine, as we saw very early on? Can I trust him to protect me? Can I trust him to provide the son of promise? Can I trust him to protect my beautiful wife from pagan kings? Can I trust him to open Sarah's womb and fulfill the promise that he gave me? Is he enough? Or will I leave off from following him, create my own plans to get the things that I really want in life? Every one of the needs that I just mentioned created incredible trouble and challenge in the life of Abraham. Because there were things that he and those in his sphere of influence could not imagine life without. God for them often was not enough. And as you read through this text, ask yourself this question. Is God my sole delight and satisfaction? Is his presence and his abundance, his person, enough? Or am I always having on the shelf that God should occupy alone? Do I always have com 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 competitors for God sitting on the shelf beside Him? What you're going to learn in this story is that God will not abide competition because He is indeed supreme. He is worthy of all of our praise. 
And in this story, God is going to put Abraham through a set of circumstances that is going to bring him to a place where he realizes that God is indeed enough. This morning, would you ask yourself this question? Would you say to yourself, what about me? What must I have in order to be satisfied, in order for my life to be meaningful, happy? What is it that I am pursuing to the exclusion of God? What must I have? A few weeks ago, after the storm, some of you had to have electricity. <laughs> kind of understand that. Sometimes we have to have certain purchases or purchasing capabilities. Sometimes the latest technology. We have a lot of Apple employees in the house this morning. Zach's one of them. And I think he's actually seduced a number of others in his sphere of influence to become Apple employees. Got to have technology, right? Sometimes we say, I have to have a paycheck. I have to have my reputation. I have to have security. I have to have a comfortable life that is controlled. For some, I have to have people's approval. I have to have a relationship that I know doesn't please God. I have to have acceptance. I have to have this habit that God wants to deliver me from. I maintain this attitude. I have to look like this. I have to think like this. Because God is not enough. And so we, we're, we pressurize our lives by trying to hang on to God and other things, which Jesus says is impossible. He's going to lead Abraham through a series of difficult circumstances to bring him to a place where he knows that God is enough. He is the final source of satisfaction and delight in life. That's why the psalmist says to us, delight yourself in the Lord. And what will he give you? I'll give you what you're looking for and how we wrestle, how we wrestle. Verse 1 of Genesis 22 says sometime later, we don't know how long this is. We know that Isaac, the son of promise from chapter 20 and 21, where his birth is recorded, is a young boy. So we can say perhaps this is 8 to 12 years after the promise of the son has finally come and God realizes or Abraham realizes God is my provider. God's the one who meet, meets my needs. Sometime later, after the promise is fulfilled, Abraham is now 100 plus years old. And guess what he's still doing? He's still learning. Okay, I hope that encourages you. I hope that encourages you. 30 some years into his walk with Christ, he's still learning. And guess what? God is still abiding in his life as the patient instructor. And we know there were things in Abraham's life that would cause us to toss him aside. But God has not. And God in this text is bringing Abraham into the school of learning. Into a place of testing. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go into the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. 
He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up. He said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And you can imagine for Abraham, I have that question just like a knife stuck in his heart. Fire the wood, but where is the lamb? This is an amazing story. Raises a question. What does it mean in verse 1 when it says that God, some years later, tested Abraham? You can move in two directions. Because we know in the Word of God that Satan tempts people. The aim of the temptation is to cause colossal failure. Is that what God is doing with Abraham? Okay, I answer you from James 1, 13 to 14. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt any man. So what is the nature of this circumstance? What is the nature of it when it says God does this to test him? And I think the difference between what Satan does in our lives and what God does in our lives is the aim, the goal, the purpose of what he's bringing. Satan brings temptation to cause moral failure and destruction. God brings test to grow us in our faith. And so James 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy when you encounter tests or trials of various kinds. Why? What is God doing? God is seeking to develop in you perseverance, staying power, strength, and faithfulness as a child of God. So Hebrews eleven seventeen will look back on this story and say, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him. Okay, so we know that the, the, the understanding of what's happening back in Genesis is that God is testing Abraham. Same idea from James chapter 1. He is proving how far Abraham has come. God is not going to uncover for himself information about Abraham in this story. God is doing this to show Abraham something about himself, about his glory, about his purposes in Abraham's life. So as we move through this text, I want to do it by asking a few questions. The first one is this. How does God test us? How does he advance us? How does he move us along and prove out for us the genuineness of our commitment to him? And I think the first way that God does it in this text very clearly is that he does it by asking us to surrender something that we love. Okay, the way that God tests us is by asking us to loosen our grip on something that we, and understand this, on something that we must have. Okay, in our thinking, what are we saying? I have to have this to be happy. And sometimes what we're clinging to may be something that God actually gave to us. So as you look at this text, don't always think in terms of the things that we have to give up are always immoral and wrong. Not the case. Sometimes the things that God wants us to give up are from Him. They're gifts that He gave us for a season, for a time. And sometimes He says, okay, it's time for you to let that go and move on to this. 
Okay? Sometimes God's provision can become something I won't let go of. An idol that I love too much. Okay? It's exactly what he says to Israel in the Old Testament, isn't it? When you go into the promised land, don't get consumed with the gifts. Remember the giver. And what will God do? Sometimes God's going to say to us, let go of that provision and trust me. Watch me work. Don't, don't let that blessing become an idol. That is something that replaces me. Okay, but please understand, this can happen to all of us. Okay, we can become people, if I, if I take an illustration, something that's dear to my heart, we can become people that worship our family more than we worship God. We love our family environment and circumstance more than we love God. And sometimes God's saying, be careful that my blessings don't replace me. Okay, have a willingness to surrender something that we love. What is this is exactly what happens in verse 2? God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, who you love. Three, if you will, descriptions of what God is requesting and requiring from Abraham. Your son, your only son. Okay, which begs the question Did Abraham have other sons? Okay, what have we learned? Ishmael was his other son. But what did God ask Abraham to do back in Genesis 21, chapter preceding? You know what he said? He said, Abraham, you've got to let Ishmael go. You've got to let go of the parachute on your back to follow me. Meaning, you have to trust me completely. And what does God do? God gives Abraham, through, through direct instruction, courage to release Ishmael. And then in the next chapter, he asks for the unthinkable. Okay, with, with the possible option removed, Ishmael, what does God do? He says, okay, let's talk about Isaac. And he asked Abraham to do something that is unthinkable with the son of promise, with the son to whom God had tied his plan and Abraham's future. Okay, so I want you to understand. Ishmael's gone. Isaac is the only son now. The son to whom God has tied his plan for Abraham and all the promises about the future. It's all wrapped up in Isaac. And then God says to Abraham, okay, I want Isaac. I want you to surrender Isaac. And you can just imagine what runs through Abraham's mind. And then he says to Abraham this. He says, I want you to give up Isaac, the son you love. Is it appropriate for a father to love his son? Absolutely. I think it's part of the biblical command for parents. Is it possible for us to love our sons too much? I have no clue. Don't know if that's possible. If you ask me about loving daughters too much, I can answer that question. But I can't answer the question about sons. Is it possible? In this text, it becomes apparent that it is possible for us to love anything too much. Because in this case, what is God saying? God's saying, Abraham, I want your son. And that just, that pulls us. And the clear command in the text is this. I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. You know what a burnt offering is in the Old Testament? It is one that lays on the altar and is totally consumed. It is given in a way that is absolutely irretrievable. 
There is no going back and there is no partial obedience to this command. Either Abraham says yes or Abraham says no. Which does what? All right, this text in your mind, it, it, as, as, as someone who lives in the 21st century, you get all kinds of tensions running around in your mind. How could God ask for the sacrifice of a child? Right? And what we want to do is deliver God from the apparently contradictory nature or difficult nature of this directive. And we tend to read the end of the story into the beginning. And what we do is we water down the request of God to Abraham. Folks, please understand this. God, even though I know that God doesn't want him to kill his son, because I know the rest of the story, God actually asked Abraham to do this. Okay, he has put him into a place where he is asking him seriously and sincerely to surrender something that he loves. You can ask yourself this question. Is that right? Who gave Isaac to Abraham? Who gave him? God. God had entrusted him to Abraham. Do you remember the story in 1 Samuel chapter 1? Hannah prays for a son. She's given a promise that the son is coming. And here's what she says. She said, as she comes to dedicate his life to God. Okay, this was the child that she prayed for. She wept for, begged for. God provided. And here's, here's the test. Okay, Hannah, are you going to love your child more than you love God? Or are you going to love God in a way that allows you to surrender your child to God's will and purpose? See, that's the tension. Here's, what Hannah, here's Hannah's resolution. I prayed for this child. God gave me this child. I give him to the Lord, listen, for his whole life. That's exactly what God asked Abraham to do with Isaac. Give him up utterly and completely in a way that is apparently irretrievable and irreversible. So how does God test us? The first thing he's going to do is to ask you to give up something that you love, usually something that you love too much, something that is affecting your ability to follow him completely. Okay, he'll reach in and say, okay, I want that. How do faithful people respond when God calls them to surrender something that they love in many cases, too much. How does a person who wants to honor God, do you negotiate with God? Do you seek alternative plans? Do you seek to edit the plan to try to clarify what are you really asking? How does a devoted follower of Jesus respond when God says, I want that, that thing, that person, that passion, that desire, that affection that you love more than me? I want to be first in your life. How does a believer respond? This text tells us that we surrender our best to God. When God asks for something we love too much, we are to be not tight-fisted with it, but open-handed with it. That we say, God, here, I give this to you. And I want you to just read through this text now with me. And I want you to watch the surrender of Abraham. I'm going to do it in terms of his obedience was. And I'm going to give you a few descriptives of the way that Abraham responds to the difficult command of God. As a faithful man, fascinatingly now in a very different place than he had been years before, right? He's a compliant God follower. And how does a faithful person respond when God asks for something that we love too much? We surrender our best to him. Notice verse 3. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. Okay? So his obedient 
I'll give you these descriptions. His obedience, first of all, is immediate. There is no hint of hesitation. There is no indication that Abraham asked for any clarification. Why? This was way too clear. Take your son, your only son, who you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. It was very, very clear. The son that God had planned the future around, God is now asking Abraham to give to him. And there is no backup plan in sight. Would, God, would Abraham obey God when it seemed illogical and irrational? Okay, this, folks, be honest. This makes no sense. Why would God ask for this? Abraham obeys when the obedience was unreasonable, when it defied logic. And I think the question that God is begging to Abraham, he's laying before him, Abraham, am I enough? Am I your sole satisfaction? Am I the one from whom you derive your ultimate joy? Verses 4 and 5, we see that his obedience is driven by faith. Listen to what this says. I just love this passage. On the third day, as they're traveling, Abraham looked up and he saw this place, Mount Moriah, in a distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back. Okay, and that... He said to me, what's one of the key phrases in this text? It's this. I'm going to go over there. We're going to worship, which worship in this context meant what? Sacrifice your only son. And what does Abraham say? We're going to go do that. And we're going to come back. Which means that Abraham's obedience is driven by what? A belief in something about God that is enabling him to let go of something that he loves and that he feels that his life has been built around, that he needs, but he's in a different place. He's not protecting it. Comfort and security are not the driving force of his life. God's glory is. And so what does he do? He willingly takes this son to the mountain to sacrifice him. Hebrews eleven nineteen gives us some insight into what's going on here. It says, Abraham reasoned in his heart that God could raise the dead. And he went. I want to tell you something. I don't have that kind of faith. I do not have that kind of faith. Do you want to have that kind of faith? Oh, yeah. But guess what it's going to take? It's going to take years of learning in the school of God, years of testing in the school of God. To come to a place where unreasonable, unreasonable obedience becomes thinkable. It becomes doable. Because Abraham was filled with a degree of faith. That he was willing to trust God. Think about how Abraham got Isaac. Abraham, the Bible tells us, as good as dead. Right? At 100 years old, he would participate in a relationship with his wife that would bring a son. And his wife would say to him, my womb is as good as dead. Because there's already been a miracle in the birth of this child. And what did it do? It increased Abraham's faith and capacity to trust God to do the unthinkable. This step of obedience was not meant to exalt Abraham. This step of obedience, an act of faith, was meant to exalt God. And folks, one of the things we have to get over in our lives is thinking that the purpose of our lives is for us to look better. The purpose of our lives is to live for the glory of God. 
And the outcome of this test would be that Abraham would be more amazed at God. Now, he's already amazed at some level because he's taking a step of faith that is completely illogical. I wrote in my notes this thought. Life is simpler when you believe and obey God. Is it easier? No, this isn't easy. But it is simpler. When you believe and obey God, Abraham has come to a different place. His response to this circumstance is not complicated. But the other thing that we learn is this. This obedience to God is costly. This is an expensive obedience. Verse 6 through 8, Abraham starts going with his son. The fire, the wood are there. Isaac says to him, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I love Abraham's response. What does he say? God will provide. What does Abraham do? He's just going out in faith to do what? To sacrifice his son. He doesn't try to explain it to Isaac, however, does he? You know what he does? He defers to the provision of God. Why? Because this is about God. Here's the thought in the back of my mind is, did Abraham even tell Sarah that they were going on a hike? I mean, how do you explain that to your wife? Okay, I mean, think about it. She's not even mentioned here. My guess is Abraham said, we just got to go out and find an animal. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go out and go for a walk. There, there's no reasonable explanation here. And Abraham obeys. Folks, understand this. Sometimes our obedience to God will cost us, but it will also cost people close to us. If there's a picture of that in Scripture, it's here. Abraham's obedience to God was going to cost Isaac his life. And my, how we wrestle with allowing God to be first because it cost us, it cost those around us. But in the midst of this picture where Isaac, it, 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 Abraham takes the wood and what is he, he puts it on the shoulders of his son. Okay, and you ought to have an echo from the New Testament that comes to your mind like that. Somebody else bore wood on his back as a sacrifice to God. And that person was Jesus Christ. And Isaac is going to become a picture of Christ in this story. Costly obedience. And then verses 9 and 10. They come to Mount Moriah. They reach the place that God had told him about. What does Abraham do when he gets there? Start standing around anxiously waiting for an alternative. Now, what's he do? The text says, when Abraham got there, he built an altar. He arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. His obedience was complete. No hesitation. No holding back. Kierkegaard made this observation of this text. He said, and there he stood. The old man with his only hope. But he did not doubt. He did not look anxiously to the right or left. He did not challenge heaven with his prayers. He knew that it was God the Almighty who was testing him. 
He knew that it was the hardest sacrifice that could be required of him. But he knew also that no sacrifice was too hard when God required it. And he drew the knife. That is an amazing picture to me. Of a man fully surrendered to God in an obedience that is costing everybody in his sphere of influence. The key to this text, I believe, is this. God had become for Abraham enough, and that enoughness of God, that satisfaction in God, caused him to be able to surrender everything that he loved to the plan and purpose of God. There is no possibility here of half-hearted obedience, as there is no possibility for us as Christians of half-hearted Christian living Jesus says to us, he says, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. You must be willing to give up everything to follow me. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane gives us a great example of this kind of self-sacrifice for the glory of the Father. He says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This morning I ask you this question. What has God been asking you to give up, to sacrifice, or to do that requires a significant change in your life? Or even a minor alteration in your life? What is the the issue? What is the thing? For some it may be the, the zone of comfort that you're living in, the security that you enjoy, Maybe it's time, time that God is asking you to give to serve someone in need or to seek His face more diligently. Perhaps it's resources to support His work. It may be a good thing that God wants you to give up. It may be a bad thing that He wants you to give up. But there is no room in the Christian life for equivocating, for looking around anxiously, looking for a way out of God's clear direction. In this case, in this text, we have clear direction. What is it that we treasure, that we coddle, that we cling to, that God says to us, give that up and I will show you something amazing? Because that's what's going to happen in this text. The question that has to start to run through your mind is, how does God respond to the complete surrender of Abraham? He has gone all the way. He's got the son on the altar. He is ready to take his life. Following God's clear direction. So the third question I ask you is this. How does God respond when we surrender? When we say that thing that we're clinging to, that we want, that we must have? When we say, okay, I'll give it up. How does God respond? I think the answer is very simple in verses 11 through 14. It's memorialized in the name Jehovah Jireh in verse 14. God will provide. Here's what's cool to me. Go back to chapter or verses 6 through 8, when Isaac says, where's the lamb? What is Abraham's response? God will provide. And in some translation it says this, he'll see to it. He'll make it happen on the mountain of the Lord, on the place that he called me to go to, he will make obedience possible. Okay, what is Abraham to do? When he gets to the mountain, give a burnt offering, Abraham. What is it apparently going to be? It's apparently going to be his son. But in this text we see God's provision. In the path of difficult surrender. Notice how God responds to Abraham. Verse 10. He reached out his hand. 
took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And I'm sure Abraham's reply here was sudden and quick. I'm right here, I'm listening. <laughs> you just imagine what, what a sense. Of, God called him to go, and now there he is in the place of obedience on the mountain that God designated for sacrifice, and there God meets him. God cries out to him, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Folks, please understand this. God never wanted child sacrifice in this text. That's not his purpose. His purpose was to bring Abraham to the end of himself where he would find that God is the sole source of satisfaction. That God is the richest of delights. We receive God's provision, first of all, in this sense of approval. What is God saying to Abraham? Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, Isaac. And the name of Isaac keeps coming up over and over. Why? Because he's the reminder of a miracle from the past. Okay, he's the son who when he was born, named him Isaac, which means they laughed. They thought it unthinkable that he would come. And then when he comes, God asks for him to be sacrificed. And when Abraham is willing to give up that which he loves the most in order that God might be glorified in his provision... Abraham experiences the approval of God. This thought, now I know, most translators and, and commentators talk of this, this statement, now I know Abraham, is a statement of God's delight in Abraham's obedience. It's God looking at Abraham saying, you are my son, I love you, and I love your passion for me, and your sacrifice for me. A beautiful statement of God's approval for Abraham. Now I know you and it's fascinating. He says, Abraham, you fear me. Not that you tremble sitting in a corner by a rock, but you reverence me. You, you've come to a place, Abraham, where when I ask you to do something, you're responsive. And when we get there, folks, the approval of God flows down, assurance, peace in our hearts. Because we're giving up the things that he wants us to give up. And we're honoring him in it. And then we also find in verse 13 that there is the provision of God. And this is so beautiful. Abraham looked up. God calls, don't kill your son. It's not what I intended. Abraham looks up and there he sees a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. He went over and took, God didn't have to say, hey, Abraham, go get the ram. And put her on the altar, okay? Abraham's cutting ropes. He's setting his son free. And he, what does he have? He has the provision of God. My pastor used to say it this way. He had the provision of the God who was seldom early but never late. Folks, I want to tell you something. The joy that Abraham experienced that day followed sacrifice. Okay? Because when Hebrews interprets this text, you know what it says? Isaac was as good as dead. Meaning what? That in his mind, Abraham was, he was going through with obedience that was costly. He reasoned in his mind that God could raise him from the dead. That yes, God brought him from a dead womb and from a dead man as good as. He can bring him back from the dead. Therefore, I will obey him. Okay, that is remarkable faith. And to look up in this account 
in this situation and see the ram caught in the thicket was the experience only of people that are willing to sacrifice things that are precious to God so that they might then enjoy and experience the provision of God. Okay, so this provision from God, this astonishing, clear provision, a substitute for his son that brought great joy, that experience only came to the life of people who were willing to surrender. Okay, the principle comes up in the book of Philippians in a verse that is profoundly misunderstood. In the book of Philippians, at the end, Paul is saying, thank you to the Philippian church, you met my needs. You you sacrificed from your resources to see the work of God advance. And he's saying thank you. And then he goes into verse 19, which we all know out of context. Okay, the context is people who sacrificed for the glory of God. Who gave of their resources out of their poverty to meet the needs of Paul. For them, what does Paul say? My God will supply all of your needs. Whose? And here's what we think. Oh, it just, we, we just quote that verse willy-nilly. God promises to meet the needs of those who are willing to give up what is costly, what they love for the purposes of God. And then where does he, what does he do? He meets you there at the place of sacrifice. And he becomes your abundance in a way that he never could have been before. That's what I'm telling you. This text is... It teaches Abraham, but its primary purpose is to reveal God as who? What does Abraham say? So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, which is exactly what he said to Isaac going up the mountain, remember? Isaac says, we're getting a little uncomfortable here, Dad. Where's the lamb? God will provide. Does Abraham know how? No. He does not know how. What is he doing? He's walking by faith in immediate obedience to the call of God. And when he comes to the place of sacrifice, he is willing to go through with it. There he is met by the provision of God Almighty. And Abraham walks away from that place saying, we got a name for this place. This place is Jehovah Jireh. This place is God provides for the needs of those who are willing to sacrifice costly things for the glory of God. Okay, and I think... Please understand this. That provision comes in the place of sacrifice. It is the response of God to Abraham's willing sacrifice. Not to what he thinks Abraham might do, but what he knows Abraham has done. So verse 15 says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, third time in the text, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Through who? Through Isaac. Your descendants will take possession of the, of the cities of their enemies and, and through their off, your offspring. All nations of the earth will be blessed. Why? Last phrase of the verse. Because you obeyed me. So this provision of God that causes Abraham to have a celebratory moment, this place is Jehovah Jireh. When did it come? It came when he obeyed God. It came because he obeyed God. What does God want you this morning to let go of? What blessings in your life, what provision of God have you been living without perhaps for years? Because you're clinging to lesser things. 
Folks, when Abraham walks away from this mountain, guess what he has? He has the provision of God, the blessing of God, and his son. Now think about that. What he was asked to sacrifice, he has. And he has a view of God that is life transforming. In the place of obedience, God will provide. What does God want you to let go of? What has he been asking you to give up that you, you think to yourself, no, 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 not that. I, can't. I couldn't live without that. And I think God's saying to us this morning, yes, you can. Yes, you can. This is why we struggle with giving, isn't it? We struggle with giving because we think, I won't be happy if I give up that. And we don't experience, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I believe the text is saying something like this. If you withhold obedience to the difficult commands and directives of God, he is not obligated to meet your needs. But when you walk by faith, he has promised to meet you in the place of sacrifice. And you will always go away with a new view of God that is enriched and that is powerful, that is changing your life in a way that you could never have experienced apart from such a tension. So God let Abraham go into this so that Abraham could cut out of it with a renewed view of the glory and power of God. So this morning, what is it that God wants from you? Now this text is worked out in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11 it says, figuratively, Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead. Okay? Figuratively, it was a done deal. So, what greater truth did Abraham learn through this surrender? What did he, what did he learn about God that would change the rest of his life? Because he was willing to t- make the hard call of obedience. What happened? At one level, I think it's, it's, it all can be summarized in Jesus John chapter 8 and verse 56, Jesus says to the Jews, the leaders, Abraham, your father, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day and was glad. Okay, in what way did Abraham see the day of Christ? How? How could Jesus say that Abraham, 2,000 years earlier, saw that day of Christ? Well, Hebrews says he saw it in this chapter of Genesis. And and I just say, okay, what did he learn? What did he learn about Jesus? He learned, first of all, that the Lord can and will provide on the mountain of Moriah, which was what? It's the mountain where the temple ultimately is built. It's the mountain just off to the side of it where the Son of God gives his life to pay the price for our sin as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Abraham was in that historic location. And he said, here... God will provide. Folks, understand this. Let this thought change you. If you don't know Christ, if you have not found forgiveness through the blood of Christ, through someone who dies in your place, it's on the mountain of Moriah that God provides, just like he did for Abraham, a substitute for his son. So the son didn't have to die. The ram dies. The son goes free. Do you see? But in Jesus, the son comes and there is no out. He is the ram caught in the thicket. 
He is the one that dies so that we go free from our sin. That's what Abraham saw. That God on that mountain, some 2,000 years later, would provide the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice. He also learned about the importance of substitution. That day his son did not die, but that day he did obey God and give a burnt offering with the ram that he provided. Abraham saw this very simple truth. My son goes free today because the blood of another was shed. Folks, that's the gospel, isn't it? We go free because Jesus bore the wood of the cross like Isaac bore the wood of the sacrifice. And on that cross, he died. And this, for who? For me. For you. For everyone who will believe. He shed his blood. The ram comes under the knife for Isaac. Jesus comes under God's wrath for us. And John 3.16 then makes better sense, doesn't it? The Lord will provide. God so loved the world that he gave or provided his only, and listen to this, his one and only son. Okay, and right there you should be like, okay, I heard that before three times. Abraham, sacrifice your son, your only son. Folks, that's what God did for us. The picture of substitution. The part that probably changed Abraham the most going away from this event is that he learned about the intensity of God's love. Here's the way Paul puts it. Abraham was called by God to give up his son. You know what Abraham said? Okay, I'll do it. And then God provided. You know what Abraham learned? He learned how much he loved his son. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? God will provide Jehovah Jireh. On the mountain, it will be provided. What's the mountain? The mountain is the place of sacrifice. What mountain is God calling you to today? What does he want you to take there? To offer up to him and say, God, okay, I'm done with trying to be popular. I'm done trying to have enough money to be happy. I'm done with this sinful habit that's destroying my life because I think it can replace you. I'm done. I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it on the altar. This attitude sort of other that I carry around to keep myself feeling better than, done. Dead on the altar. I don't know what it is for you this morning. But I know that when you go to God and you say, God, I am willing to give this up. God is going to meet you in that place and satisfy your needs in a way that no other thing on earth could possibly do. And with it, with that provision, he eliminates the guilt of sinful self-seeking. And there you go away from that place saying, you know what? God has provided through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what God did for all of us to show his love. He provided his one and only son. He did it to free you from self-centered desires. He did it to free you from things that enslave. He did it so that you could enjoy his provision. And when you come to the place of surrender, you will meet the approval and provision of our Father in heaven coming down. And you will be able to say, on this mountain, on this place that God called me to, to sacrifice to him, he provided And the most beautiful picture of that is the cross. This morning as we come to the Lord's table, 
as a church family, we come to remember that Jesus Christ died in our place and we go free. We come to remember that by His stripes, we are healed. We come to remember that on Mount Moriah, God provided His Son. And His Son paid the price for our sin. And the purpose of coming to the Lord's table is to remind us of that sacrifice. And as we look at that sacrifice, we will, Paul says, examine ourselves Relinquish any sin that we are aware of. Confess it to God. And then come and take the elements that say, Christ died for me. I go free. Because His blood has cleansed me from all my sin. Father, as we come this morning.